We are live. Welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. This is the, the third webinar, actually it's more of a conversation than anything else, of our January 2016 series uh, titled Maker Ed Tinkering Inventing Learning, which was organized by me, Howard Reingold, and you can find out all about me at reingold.com, R-H-E-I-N-G-O-L-D. Um, I've been the host for the, the previous uh, webinars this month, and, and we've got one more after this. They're on Thursdays at, at, at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, we focus, because I'm really interested in it, on maker educators in schools, libraries, and after-school programs who are awakening and feeding interest in discovery, invention, and hands-on learning through new tools and practices. If you're watching this, please take a moment to share it with your networks. Today we're talking with A.J. Almaguer, Lisa Brahms, Sherry Shi, Kylie Pepler, um, and maybe Luz Rivas, um, who's in transit, about how to get started with making learning and possibilities for where to, where to take it in, in, a, in a very wide range of settings. Before we dive into our conversation, let's go over a couple quick details. Uh, to those watching live right now, um, we welcome comments and questions through either the Twitter hashtag ConnectedLearning or the Q&A feature that you should see within the video player. We'll do our best to address your questions here in the Hangout. Um, and uh, this is also being co-streamed at the National Writing Projects in EducatorInnovator.org. So uh, before we begin, I'd like to give everyone a chance to introduce themselves and tell us about what you do and, and where you do it. So why don't we start with the, uh, the person next to me in the, the little thumbnails, which is, is Sherry Shi. And remember to unmute yourself before you start talking. Great. Thank you, Howard. Um, uh, I am a, a senior researcher at a nonprofit called the Concord Consortium. And I have been working in K-12 and informal education for over 20 years, uh, designing and researching how people learn with technology. Uh, most recently, I helped start a makerspace at the Lawrence Hall of Science called the Tech Hive. And you'll be hearing more about that later. Oh, good. Uh, great. Uh, Lisa? Hi, um, I'm Lisa, and I'm the Director of Learning and Research at Children's Museum of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And um, I uh, helped to really start and spearhead MakeShop, which is our makerspace at the Children's Museum, which is really designed to support um, learning experiences through making for young children and families, as well as um, schools and, and teachers. And so, um, so, yeah, it's been a really fun journey, and I'm excited to, to talk about it. Wonderful. You can see we've got a great group here. Kylie? Thank you, Howard. Yeah, so my name is Kylie Pepler, and I'm an Associate Professor of Learning Sciences here at Indiana University. Um, and I'm also directing uh, the Creativity Labs, where we've been doing a lot of research around making and, and leading an initiative called uh, the Make to Learn Initiative that's been sponsored by the MacArthur Foundation. That work has kind of brought us in, in contact with a lot of the National Writing Project, and we've produced like four curriculum volumes around making and trying to build this bridge between making and the and the curriculum. Um, so it's been fun. We've been sort of specializing in e-textiles or sort of wearable um, computers that can be sewn into clothing and learning a lot about what this means for making and how we can make making more equitable as well as foster like better learning over time. So uh, you know those of you who uh, may see this later, uh, all of the resources that, that our guests um, have at their disposal will, will be linked from the archive page. So um, we're hoping that this is going to help other people um, get started. AJ? Uh, thanks, Howard. Uh, my name is AJ Almaguer. I'm um, currently a independent maker and consultant uh, down here in LA. Um, but I was formerly the engineering educator of the Tech Hive with Sherry. Uh, Sherry hired me and my other colleague, Matt, or I guess former colleague, Matt uh, Chilbert, three and a half years ago when we got the Tech Hive up and running. 
Um, okay, you know, I, I'm going to get around to asking you um, on behalf of all of those who who would like to start some kind of making learning space, some tips on getting started. But how about starting out by um, telling us about some of your favorite uh, projects or, or or moments in 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 making um, that that you've had over the last year? Um, well, I can go ahead and get started. Um, so I feel like we've done a lot of projects. So a little bit about the TechHive program. This is a, a youth development program at the Lawrence Hall of Science at UC Berkeley uh, in California. And we have gone through at least three different rounds of different maker projects that started out as really huge projects, even down to kind of very simple projects. Um, the project that I want to talk about today is one um, that we've started with using really simple cardboard boxes, pizza boxes or um, cereal boxes, to try to get people to uh, start being very creative uh, with paper uh, in a project called Paper Mechatronics. Um, we've designed some different activities where kids make animals and then uh, through their own creativity, add different electronics to them. So they learn some programming, they learn a little robotics, um, and they create an animal of their choice. Um, and then as a collection, as each kid and team create an animal, they create this thing called a robot petting zoo. Um, and AJ, <laughs> thanks AJ. <laughs> and uh, you know, AJ, you're welcome to share more about this. Um, but it's been <laughs> a really interesting way of uh, starting making with really simple materials, kind of off-the-shelf things, um, starting at the at the point of creativity, and then also being able to share in a public public space like a museum or even a school. And so it's the the whole is bigger than the sum of the parts, and it and it feels like a fun thing that one can scale pretty easily. I don't know, AJ, if you want to say a little bit sure. more about that. Um, so uh, I guess to backtrack a little bit, uh, when we started the Tech Hive and we were looking up, you know the principles of connected learning. You know, we talked about how we could be production-centered, uh, yet have a shared purpose and, like, share um, the artifacts that our teens create um, to visitors. And I think the, really, the aha moment came when I realized that our museum wanted, you know, we were always looking for new ways to engage our visitors and to, like, showcase things. Uh, so that's when, you know, um, the idea of like having a little robot petting zoo, if you can see the little, <laughs> came to ha um, came to me. Um, we, um, we what we did was we we taught you know all our teens in the tech hive how to create you know little robotic animals. Uh, they were pretty simple animals that um, you know we used the hummingbird robotics kit for example. It's a very good kit, and you know just simple part like cardboard boxes and art supplies. Um, but the thing that we did was we for, we made everyone, like the design challenge that we had was to create a robotic pet that you can interact with, that you can feed, like like little pieces of paper, for example, and uh, that would like live in this pen. And so we created this exhibit at the museum uh, called the Robot Petting Zoo, um, and that um, where the all the participants could sh like showcase their their robots. And it was really it was really cute because then you know they got to see all the visitors enjoy the little robots and. Uh, that was a lot, um, and you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and then also we tried to. Uh, it came from the idea of the kids when they came to us, especially some of the younger girls who mentioned that they were not exactly comfortable uh, going to hackathons by themselves, uh, and if there was another way that they could learn hacking in a non-competitive and safe environment, and that's sort of where the start of this idea came from, of being able to work collaboratively to do creative robotics uh, and still learn programming without having to uh, develop something um, in sort of an overnight uh, kind of large kind of hacker culture setting. Yeah. So I guess with that sense, we, we created a makeathon, which was like a, a friendlier version of a hackathon. To kind of support this, uh, the robot making, and uh, um, and we, and that's how we rolled out the the maker or the robot petting zoo. Or that's how we were able to build all the robots for the robot petting zoos by hosting this makeathon um, for uh, for all these 
uh, beginner roboticists, or zookeepers, we call them. <laughs> yeah, I think this obsession with um, cardboard and paper is kind of, we're, we're taking it also to try to uh, do other things, so not just animals, but yeah. also trying to build up some different um, scientific instruments or um, you know, even venturing into mathematics. Um, but starting with a, a, a very familiar material um, that, that kids and teachers have easy access to, that they can hack easily, they can decorate and fold, um, and it doesn't seem um, as far away. Um, and so making can be really simple with just some, some paper and some materials. Mm -hmm. Lisa, Kylie, you want to jump in? Sure, sure. Um, so yeah, so MakeShop, um, just to give like like Cherry did with TechHive, MakeShop is um, a makerspace that's in our museum. And as an exhibit space and program in the museum, it's really open whenever the museum is open and, and staffed whenever the museum is open. And so um, it's, it's really a drop-in space where visitors can come for as short as five minutes to as long as, you know, five hours. And so um, just to give people a sense of of what MakeShop really is as an as a learning environment. Um, so, but but the thing that that I'm interested in talking about, um, and the most exciting thing for me that I've been involved in over the past year, has been this amazing collaboration with the Institute for Museum and Library Services to um, create a framework uh, to assist uh, museum and libraries in creating makerspaces for learning. So really helping, um, helping with this, this wave of interest in making, helping museums and libraries across the country to, um, to create the conditions to support actual learning within their spaces um, and kind of identify the, the essential elements of that and create workshops to, to, help, them, to help them design. So um, we started by going all across the country, visiting about um, 50 makerspaces and museums and libraries and really understanding all of the, the essential ingredients which you know there were similarities uh, to, to MakeShop and some real wonderful differences. Um, creating a, a base framework and then creating some, con some tools for discussion um, and case studies around the work that we did um, to help people engage with the framework. So now we're in the process of testing those tools and disseminating the work. Um, and it's it's really been so gratifying um, to visit and talk with and see the work around making. Um, the you know just there's no one way to make and um, there's no one way to support the learning through making and um, it's it's just been so gratifying to be a part of that process this year for me. In, in, in regards to disseminating the work, are, are you going to have a, a URL or that, that we can pass along to people? Because as I said, I know a couple of people who are trying to get makerspaces going here and resources like that are golden. Yes, definitely. Um, we are going to have, the, the website is going to be called makingandlearning.org. Um, it's, it's under construction right now, but um, once it's live, we're going to have website, a, a downloadable publication, as well as a MOOC um, that will take people through the process of our workshops um, to engage uh, with the tools and with the framework. So uh, it's pretty exciting. Things should be um, rolling out within the next few months. So, so yeah, keep your eye out for it. Really oh, great. Cool. Wonderful. Yeah. Kylie? Yeah, that sounds fabulous, Lisa. I can't wait to see that. Um, you know, we've been embarking here at the university on a project where we've been opening up our, our very own makerspace within the School of Education. And it's, it's interesting at, at the university level, um, there's a lot of need for these makerspaces in terms of how do we think about and sort of reformulate higher education. Um, but surprisingly, you know, most of the makerspaces are kind of located in schools of engineering, uh, maybe schools of business, um, but less often in schools of education. So we're really one of the first to launch these kinds of spaces. Um, and so we, we um, you know, like Lisa, kind of, kind of uh, extracted some principles about how um, to go about this. And so the things that we found to be really important for learning in makerspaces ended up being 
uh, kind of being able to have everything out in the open and visible. Um, and I, I know that was one of the uh, early principles uh, guiding sort of the make shop as well. Um, so all of our tools and materials are visible. They're hanging on the walls. There's no there's no cabinets. Actually, um, the, the whole hallway is actually pure glass, so you can see every space. Um, so it was fascinating how the space actually uh, has self-advertised immediately after it was launched. I mean, everybody's got ideas of what to do in this space. Um, and for us, what it means to have a makerspace now in the School of Education is how do we reposition teachers, not as consumers of all of these um, you know, books and curriculum and materials that are put out there, but really as designers of classroom learning experiences. Everything that we do from the positioning of our desks to how we frame the curriculum to the hands-on activities to our choice of materials has an impact on learning. And, and we've known this intuitively, and yet so much of the discourse has really removed teachers from really being positioned as active agents and designers of the classroom experience. Um, so for us, this is kind of a re-envisioning of what it might mean to be a teacher and sort of thinking about 21st century learning experiences. Uh, hopefully, we're, you know, we're, we're working to kind of put the curriculum in place now to have a new uh, cadre of teachers um, and librarians being trained on these tools and materials, uh, having our faculty actually start to teach in this space. For me, teaching in this space now merges my research interests with my teaching experiences. So I don't have to bring my demos to class. Is that they're surrounded with this, and so they they ask questions about the materials that are there. They can see the work in progress. It's also been a really great space because it's not just a space that belongs to my lab any longer. We've always had access to these tools and materials through my lab, but we haven't had a shared communal space. Now the shared communal space means that I, I'm able to share my research with so many of my other colleagues and they're able to share their work with me and, and it's creating a sense of joy, of happiness, of, of community um, in the higher education culture. And so it's been really, really fun to kind of see this all play out. And then the innovations, you know, the things that are starting to happen now are leading to new games and new uh, like uh, electronic puppetry prototypes, all sorts of things that both the students and the faculty are working on um, that's just really, really generative. So it's been a, a, it's been a real game changer for us. It's been really fun. Well, so to, to get a little bit into this, um, how do you get started in it, the, the idea of reframing learning for teachers around maker ed, is there a particular philosophy or way of, you know, design philosophy, pedagogical philosophy that you, you frame for them? Oh, absolutely. Well, for those of you that know me know that I, I am a constructionist, right? So I'm, I uh, really adhere to sort of the, the Seymour Papert, Mitchell Resnick, um, you know, Yasmin Kafai school of thought in terms of that we learn by making. And, and that that orientation you know, really engages us in high quality learning practices as we start to go um, and start to rethink our classroom experiences in that way. Um, you also know me because I, I um, believe very deeply in sort of the principles of connected learning as well. And so um, sort of looking at this intersection of connected learning and constructionism, how do we learn by making, but how do we use connected learning to really deepen those learning objectives and think about how do we make that openly networked? How do we share that work? How do we, um, you know, push it in some many ways that we know are uh, important and transformative to that learning experience. Um, for me, the, oh, <laughs> for me the, the, my, um, I guess the most important design principle that I follow that, I, that has worked for me is having a shared purpose. And um, I guess in working in the tech hive, that's the, the main thing that I feel like I was always driving for, uh, that I was, um, like we always have a shared purpose and whether it was like a monthly push of like a new inter like a, a new like showcase on the museum floor um, to like a maker space pro a maker fair project uh, for the, you know the big maker fair that happens in San Mateo um, or like um, working towards like opening up a haunted house you know for Halloween um, so um, that's that. That's what worked the best for me, and I feel like it helped. It really helped, like build the community and the camaraderie, and the motivation. Because you know, once once everyone knows there's a deadline, and you know, people will be waiting for to see your work, you know, on on stage. <laughs> and then it just kind of gets everyone into it, whips everyone into shape, and then you know that that, and then with every like 
finished performance, everyone just feels so good and they're ready for the next one. So the more like sh shared purpose you can provide your makerspace, I think the better it will be. I think that that aspect of of kind of sharing your work is a kind of a form of publishing in the making yeah. world, and you're celebrating in the making. Um, and there's some, um, you know, it's very typical in architecture studios as well, where you know it's also a, an opportunity for critique and revision and refinement to get better at something. Um, thinking about my design philosophy, I feel like I come in more from STEM learning, science, technology, engineering, and math, and for many years. Uh, We've been thinking about how do you support uh, this idea of inquiry. So having children start with a question that's important to them, um, a driving question, and then what are the resources that you bring to investigate that science question? Um, uh, and then from that, uh, you know, it's it's very learner centered. It's it's really centered around what is the student really interested in answering? And I think in the making frame. It's around what did they feel like they want to make, whether or not it's a specific design challenge, or it might be that they're really making meaning, or they're 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 doing expressive making, um, you know, aesthetic making, and so they don't have a particular agenda in mind except to maybe work with the materials, um, you know, express something with the materials, or it could be they have a very specific purpose, uh, which is around um, you know making a water filter. Uh, we had this one student who was interested in harnessing the ocean's energy um, through some sort of floating ball system that you could throw into the ocean um, and have the ocean waves get generated and captured in this. And so he spent some time building these cardboard balls. Um, and I don't think he actually figured out the engineering of it, but that was enough for him to start thinking about and kind of tinkering with materials to think about kind of a, a, a bigger challenge. Um, so I guess in general, it's it's sort of... You know, starting with the driving question, and maybe starting with uh, uh, you know this idea of learner-centered design, and starting where the where where the interest is. How to harvest energy from from the ocean is a a, a great big question. Um, do you have any other examples of of questions that motivated kids to to do things? Wow. Um, Trying to think of some other specific examples, uh, we had a recent project in the Tech Hive around building social robots. Um, so uh, being able to create this robot that would help communicate and be basically an explainer um, in the museum, uh, which I thought was an interesting idea because oftentimes uh, the teens in the program were supposed to be facilitating uh, serving as facilitators in the museum, and here they were building robots to replicate what they might be doing themselves, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, AJ, I don't know if you if you can think of other examples um, off the bat. Uh, we had one kid who wanted to. He was kind of more grounded. He wanted to build a a way that he could quickly hang his clothes up because apparently his mom would nag him with all the clothes that would that were <laughs> that that was in his room so he wanted to create this hanger that you could quickly like pick up and throw together it was kind of the throwable hanger that could hang clothes um, and made that prototype um, we had another kid who was tired of back to this um, makerspaces are gorgeous spaces that you can lay out all sorts of tools um, some of the teens were kind of lazy, I would say, and they, they had wanted to get the same set of tools all the time. And so one kid made a tray, um, again, out of cardboard, where you could have one cutting knife, one ruler, one straight edge, one pencil. And so it was sort of the convenience of, um, in the same way that you would get fast food, you know, like you could carry it in a, in a bin. That was, his, that was his, his design. So, I mean, there's a huge range of, of projects, but those are just some examples that I could oh. think of off the top of my head. For me, I, um, to the motivating questions that I, um, to get you know the kids uh, making, um, I always look back to, I feel like the, one of the most successful examples in science education is you know the robotics competitions. And I studied it for a long time because um, I, you know, I, I really, I saw how engaged they were. I mean, I participated in one too and I got super engaged, but then I also saw like, how, like, for example, in the finals, there was nothing but, like, boys on the finals, on the field, 
And so I was like, hmm, they're not doing, like, there's, they're missing something in this whole, um, you know, getting, uh, engaging, you know, kids to, to be makers. Um, and what I realized is that, um, like, these kinds of, like, bigger camaraderie events, um, like, kind of like a sporting um, arena, um, or like a show, like, it's, like, you need, a, like, a competition or a showcase. And um, it's up to, like, I think the educators of the makerspace to kind of create those larger, um, I guess, prompts or, like, reasons for all the kids to kind of come together and work, to, um, work on something. So those are, I think, the big, the big challenges that, to, like, unify the makerspace were the ones that, like, I guess drove the, ma like, the overarching arc of the maker, of the making. Um, and through all, like, while we had that, all this, like, in the, like, all these smaller, like, making projects came about, like, organically. So. Lisa, did, I, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about this philosophy, design philosophy, pedagogy, framing it for teachers question. Yeah, you know, um, I think a lot of, for us, a lot of that comes through the designs, the design of the space, the design of activity, and the design of facilitation that happens in our space. Um, you know, as Kylie mentioned, uh, everything is kind of out there in the make shop. The, the material is there for, for visitors to, to touch. The, you know, materials are there for them to see. Some of them you can reach. Some of them are harder to reach, <laughs> um, as they should be. Um, and so, um, yeah, kind of that visual interest really, I think, is the initial invitation for, for anyone coming into the make shop. And then um, from there, you know, it's the facilitators that really make the magic happen through the ways they guide people through the making process, the ways they invite visitors into the making process. Um, it's a social space, so the way the space is designed, um, people that are engaged in making invite more people to be engaged in making just by sitting down around a table together. Um, strangers become collaborators. Um, and uh, yeah, and then um, the design of the activity itself, so, you know, we really do invite any everything from playing with a circuit block that's on a table to creating, you know, a garment that someone would take home with them. And so, and any of that can happen within the space at any given time. And so, um, you know, designing it to support those, so that those, you know, high ceilings and wide walls, but it's, as well as uh, providing constraints where people who are just beginning can feel comfortable and supported in that process of learning. Um, you know, basic skills all the way up to, um, you know, complex processes. Um, you know, something that we take really seriously and we do in an iterative way. And so, um, but really taking account of the, the facilitator's role, the space, the way the space design, the space's role, and the, the the things in the space and how they can support that that progression. Um, no, I oh, go ahead. I was going to say, since it's, Lisa, you mentioned space. I mean, one thing that is true of making is you do need a lot of space. And when um, a thing we tried to do uh, with our my kind of uh, exploration with paper and cardboard was to design a set of robotic type activities or paper mechatronic activities using these um, uh, Office Depot boxes um, to address this concept of, well, if we had gone to Maker Faire a couple times and seen and built these huge projects and then you have to figure out what are you going to do with these afterwards and it's like the, the teacher's nightmare, like every, especially if the projects don't go home but you want to save all the expensive parts to reuse them again. And so we created these box theaters, these cardboard theaters, and um, in a stackable way um, that one can take materials as well. Um, and, and, and so I think that, that one of the design questions is, you know, do you design, make, and take, or do you design and disassemble and leave, uh, which oftentimes happens at the museum, but you also have some incredibly sad, sad kids um, when they have to, like, take their project apart. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, but you know, they take a picture of it, they celebrate it in that way, um, and then they they leave the materials behind. So that it becomes sort of a shared experience. I don't know if the other others have had similar experiences. Um, 
I know I know that Kylie's got a, a cardboard robotics kit coming out. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So that's been really fun. You know, we've been we've been looking at, you know, we've talked a lot about tools and materials in space. And and I think it's really important that, you know, the way in which we design those tools and materials in space actually start to privilege um, and invite participation in a particular way. Um, so they privilege particular practices, whether that's soldering or snapping or um, uh, you know, crafting um, in in the process, and so as we've been looking at our research and kind of talking with kids and seeing what's successful, and and you know, kind of like if you have a whole bunch of materials sitting out, where you know, how do kids gravitate towards each of these materials, and why do they go in these different directions? And so, just like we've been sort of extracting um, different design principles around spatial construction, so this idea of visible and openness um, being really really important for the design of physical space, we've been learning something about um, the design of actual um, uh, uh, tools and materials. And so, um, you know, it's funny, adults will kind of think like Lego Robotics is a good example, that like if kids just, if girls just had more experience with it, right, if they would have grown up with the Lego, then they would be in those Lego Robotics championships like you had just witnessed, and it's just because they haven't had enough exposure. And the girls basically are saying, you know what, I, I've had enough exposure and I don't like those tools. It limits my creativity. It's not the kind of aesthetic um, possibilities that I want to engage. I do not want, you know, something to snap together to a grid and have this kind of boxy resolution. And so, um, and so as you, you start to hear what it is that they say, that the tools and materials become really important in how and what they want to produce, um, as, as we've been talking about uh, already this evening. And so one of the things that we found by studying this intersection of craft and electronics is it starts to transform what's happening at this nexus, at this intersection of electronics. Um, so eTexas is a really good example about how the, the, um, the crafting, it's not because it's girly, but it's because it allows for a lot, um, a lot uh, a fuller range of possibility than what our traditional electronics toolkits that have attracted girls. It's also been better for learning. Um, and so we've used some of these principles to look at craft and, and this intersection of, of what cardboard and kind of other materials um, that invite a broader participation into, into electronics. And uh, we've started creating this new toolkit. Um, it's, uh, it, you know, we've got the link, um, so it's the, the Zero kit, um, Z-I-R-O, and um, we are just taking it to the commercial landscape now. This was our early prototype was called HandyMate, so you might have seen us talking about that at some of the, some of the work. Um, and so instead of, instead of um, snapping together or soldering a robot, you actually um, use sort of joint modules to put together um, through cardboard and use Velcro to put things together. So you can, you know, pick up uh, any type of recycling materials and start to assemble your robot. It also allows for more dynamic responsibility, uh, you know, uh, uh, possibilities. So, uh, you know, on a normal um, Lego wheel, for example, um, you know, the, the, um, the center of it is already designated. And so, so the rotation is always in the center of gravity um, for that wheel. But the um, but the possibilities here with Velcro is that kids often put it right outside, you know, of that center, and so so you get this wobbly effect that has a lot of character. But you also, in the meantime, start to engage the engineering content that you need to learn as you start to construct the robot. So so again, when you engage and allow for the aesthetic possibilities, you start to allow for increased learning opportunities. So I, I think that we'll post that um, that link. But uh, right now, because we're just launching, uh, there is. Um, an opportunity um, to win a free kit, so so definitely enroll in that. Um, it's 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 on the website, and and uh, you know I, I'm actually excited to get get my uh, you know first kits off the assembly line as well. It's exciting. So that so that ziro io is where you can find out about that. You know, so you you've mentioned getting girls involved and robotics and crafting. Well, I have a um, a group of people. There's maybe ten to fifteen people over. Uh, here every Saturday, I've converted an old greenhouse into a into a, a making studio, and we worked on the pataphysical slot machine for five years before we started exhibiting it. And uh, you know, most of us are in our 60s, and we've got a couple in their 40s and 20s. And we had an 11-year-old girl join us a couple of years ago. She's 13 now, and 
she had rescued a bunch of wooden duck decoys that were being discarded and started gluing things onto them to make them attractive and um, sold them in a store and contributed the uh, proceeds to the Humane Society. She's contributed uh, over $3,000. And so when she showed up, um, we recognized her as one of us and told her that um, she couldn't just come and glue things, that she had to participate in figuring out how to do new things like we did. And so one of, uh, one of our group has become particularly interested in robotics. And you know, you can make these really, the really simple ro robots with the, the I guess, uh, sonar detectors that will back away when they bump into things. And so took uh, two of her ducks and put them on these robots and put them in a little table so that they move around the table and when they bump into each other they 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 back off and it's just you know uh, I think when people think of robotics they need to think uh, in more expansive terms than the old-fashioned kind of like the robots you see in in movies and cardboard in particular is just a, a, a great way to to get things prototyped very very quickly so my my main reason why I like cardboard is that you can color it and which makes it endlessly decoratable, um, and um, yeah, like you were saying, I, I think decorating is such an important part of making, and it's something that I, I guess I didn't realize that when I first started doing maker education. Um, but um, you know, once I realized how like, like decoratable I guess cardboard is, like I just you know I much rather go to the cardboard. Uh, using cardboard as a material than going to Legos because Legos are just you know like you don't want to destroy Legos right because they're expensive and um, you know and, and there's only so many Legos that you can use but cardboard is free like you can get it from the trash can like <laughs> we all have cardboard um, so I really love how decoratable it is. Howard you mentioned something I thought was really interesting is that you had recognized that there was potential in this girl and you saw a pathway for leveling up her skills and interest into perhaps areas that she was probably not comfortable with or wasn't maybe interested in going in, uh, which is you know a sign of a really great facilitator in a making space where you know there's a lot of listening, there's a lot of parallel play. Um, you know the best facilitators will you know not necessarily direct things, but they may leave different tools really in close proximity to a learner that they might pick it up or show some examples. Um, and then, you know, gently suggest, you know, where, where they might be interested in, um, where there might be kind of fear or anxiety or kind of not confidence in, in pursuing that area. Um, well, you know, we just stumbled into this um, ourselves, and I, I guess you could say it's a kind of a combination of, um, look what I figured out how to do and, and peer learning. So we conceive of these projects, and somebody has to figure out how to make the wooden structure and you know if you if you're not an experienced woodworker it's it's a little funky the, the first time and so then um, when somebody else wants to make something wooden then the person who plunged into that can kind of share their uh, what what they learned about how, what not to do mm -hmm. and then meanwhile someone else is figuring out the electronics where we hit kind of a wall with the electronics so what we did was we drew somebody in who really knew about that. So uh, there's sort of an overall plan about where we want to go, but a lot of it is just uh, looking at what that person in the corner is doing and asking them, how can I do that myself? Like we all make these hats that have things uh, with lights on them and, and microphones on them, and you, you kind of want to make a, you know, somebody makes a really cool hat, you want to make one, too. So I, I think you would call that peer learning and kind of, I don't know what you call it, apprenticeship kind of, of learning. Um, you all come from an education background. We're just kind of tinkerers who have learned how to do that. But it's really, you know, we don't want to go to school. None of us want to go to school, including, <laughs> in, including the 11-year-old girl. Um, it's not going to school. It's, uh, oh, look, that's cool. How do I do that? Well, I think that making has a great possibility of describing what you just said, uh, incredible starting points, and, and adding a little more creativity and personalization in the classroom. 
with projects that they can learn. Um, so I just feel like there's a there's a great potential there. Um, but there's something else that you had mentioned I thought was really interesting, which is something we struggle with is, you know, how much of making do we black box and get components versus having them do everything themselves? Um, you know, for example, we have went through this uh, exercise of, of, you know, starting with, well, maybe we should use Arduino and an Arduino programming language. And then, and then we said, well, you know, that has particular affordances. Um, and you know the the language is not that easy to learn, and then and then we said, well, there's another board for robotics called the Hummingbird Kit, which you don't need soldering, and you can you know easily plug things in, uh, and you don't need breadboarding. Um, and some people really enjoy breadboarding with electronics, but by removing that out of the process, it facilitates other forms of creativity. Um, but you know, as educators and educator makers, you have to figure out. You know, what are the skills and practices that you'd like to foster and what are the things that you, you know, maybe you don't want to be, you know, carving wood to make your duck and you do have an expert over here and you can grab a duck hole and start there. Um, that's sort of kind of the push and pull depending on kind of the age of the kids. Um, for our high school students, we found that uh, being able to give them the option of, you know, if you want to program an Arduino, great, you can do this in Scratch, um, a block visual programming language. Um, which is open source, um, and then it turns out the Hummingbird also comes with a language called, I'm going to get this wrong, AJ, it's a Create Visual, or Visual Create. Um, I, I think it's uh, a Create Lab Visual Programming uh, Yes, which like <laughs> Tom Lowers created. Um, it came out of his dissertation at, at, at Carnegie Mellon, um, and it's really designed for much younger kids, elementary school kids, to be able to begin to be empowered to do programming um, by some very some simple controls um, and kind of get started in that way. So I feel like you know, this idea of free choice is really important for kids, um, and which is really important in, in learning to make. Well, yeah. that, that raises a question of what is it that, what kind of learning are our kids doing when they're making? Yeah, real, real quick though, I actually wanted to point out something else that you said, Howard, that I thought was so wonderful that I think is quintessential as part of, you know, creating a, a generative context for learning and learning through making is that everybody in your posse is on um, equal footing. You know, everybody is a learner, everybody is a maker, everybody is an expert um, in, in something. And, and is looked to by others in that way. And um, so I just think that that too is like the most, one of the most, and something that we really value in Make Shop as far as, you know, who we, the people that are on our, our facilitation team and the way in which we think about, you know, someone as young as four or their grandmother or their father, you know, it's, these are really important stances to take towards, towards people. And sometimes they're really hard when it, when it comes to, you know, putting making in the classroom where teachers are expected to be. Oh, okay, I think we, uh, I, I think we, I think, uh, think we lost Lisa. She may have to to leave and come out, come back. But I'm going to finish your sentence for her. <laughs> teachers are expected to be the experts, but you know, increasingly, there's some kid in your class who may probably know more than than you do, and I just think that's a it's hugely powerful, and you know when I taught college students um, things about uh, how to use social media, I always tried to ask the other teachers which which one of these students who's coming into my class knows more than I do, and then take them out to lunch and get them to tell me what I need to include before the course starts. Yeah, um, I I guess I would like to echo that that it's really important uh, to build that trust with your uh, members of the makerspace. Um, I guess I do that two ways. There's two techniques that I use to uh, to build the trust with my makers. Uh, one is I like at the end of the day we do like a debriefing session. So we call it like a plussing session, and we go around in circle and we share like um, things that went well. So the pluses, and then instead of the like the minuses, we call it the deltas, which are you know change in math. Uh, and so we ask everyone to include. Um, like, what's one way that we can improve, you know, this project, I guess. Um, and we, and that's something that we do almost every time we meet. Um, so much so that it becomes like, you know, it's expected of them <laughs> and they just know at the end of the day, oh, we're going to do a plusing session. And that really helps bring the, 
I guess democratize the um, the the knowledge out there. And then the other thing I the second technique I use is um, like once I realize um, one of our makers is like becomes somewhat of an expert, I I always point to them when other makers have questions. So it's like so instead of coming to me for questions, I was like. She knows over there. Go ask her, and she can tell you. <laughs> so the whole peer learning is really important, and um, and uh, I I make sure that I don't answer the questions to undercut, so that I don't undercut you know my other makers who who actually who do know it. So, Kylie, I su I suspect that you have, have have something to say about that question of what are kids learning when they're when they're making. Yeah, I mean, what are they not learning is the is the question, right? <laughs> It is, you know, this is, um, you know, making is just such a holistic activity that that I think um, part of the challenge for us, you know, that are interested in learning in maker spaces is there's so many viewpoints on what that learning could be, you know, in terms of collaboration, in terms of, in terms of envisioning, in terms of, you know, the design process, in terms of STEM learning, in terms of arts learning. Um, so that, you know, as many uh, frameworks as you could possibly have, and I, I think. This is sort of why you know, as as fun as making is, you know, everybody can be a maker. You know, whether you're you're crafting something and doing something low tech or something extremely high tech, whether you're you know uh, working in the car industry, whether you're um, you know kind of doing something you know um, to shoot into outer space, right? Um, it, it's sort of it's a unifying way to start to bring in our curriculum and start to make it very interdisciplinary and and holistic. And we, we've we've oftentimes framed universities and schools and in very isolated fashions. We thought about literature and writing as separate from science and separate from, um, you know, uh, foreign language learning, which is separate from how we train people in fine arts. And so, um, so the thing about makerspaces is it's kind of like part science studio, part art studio, and, you know, a mix of all of these other things. And so there's a little something in there for everyone. Um, so depending on what you're making, what you're doing, you know, there's people studying, um, Certainly, STEM is, is well known just because of the way policy leanings are nationally. But um, the engineering pieces people are studying, um, the the, you know, the computational thinking people are studying. Um, Math. Uh, we have a new project looking at sort of the connections between math and craft, for example, and you know thinking about the history of computers is actually being you know kind of derived from the um, jacquard loom and and weaving. Um, you've got other folks that have been looking at you know kind of what do you learn about aesthetics and about um, the arts and as you're engaging. Uh, lots of people studying collaboration. Um, so the list kind of goes on and on, um, which is which is both the affordance of this and and the limitation is. That, is that as we start to start to communicate out um, what people learn, um, you know, it, it's a complex landscape. Um, so I think depending on our lenses, depending on how how these makerspaces are constructed, what's being engaged, um, you know, there's there's as many learning outcomes as, as we have, um, you know, different kinds of makes. Uh, I would add problem solving, uh, particularly. For me, uh, I've been a writer and a, and a teacher, and I live in a fairly abstract world most of my life. And and you know, recently I've gotten ideas about things I want to make. And uh, so, how do you do it? And you get an idea of how do you do it, and usually it doesn't work. Uh, you have to solve the the problem. And you know, I was never very interested in engineering. It didn't seem very interesting to me for most of my life but now I understand oh engineering is how do you get this thing that you have in your head to something that you can hold in your hand that you that and and that works that does what you want it to do and boy uh, learning learning that things don't work and that you can figure out how to make them work has been really big for me um, in my old age I guess if I had to answer that question of um, what are kids learning? I think it there's a measurement question in there as well of what do people hope they measure learning for? And so I think if we just look at learning by itself, um, when Charlie mentioned that there's so many different things that they are learning um, that are valuable. It's not just learning knowledge um, and ga gaining skills and practices. But there's a lot of other things, um, which I'm going to put in the bin of tacit knowledge. Of, you know, they're learning how to be resourceful. 
Uh, they're building social capital with peers and, and other people who are, have skills that they don't have. They're learning how to get along with people. Uh, they're gaining confidence, and sometimes they're learning, um, you know, important lessons about grit and persistence, and you know, f failure in the in the face of problem solving. Um, but these things are really difficult to measure, um, and oftentimes aren't valued. Um, I would say in a lot of school settings, or I would say, yeah, formal educational settings. Um, and so I think that you know, making is going to be maybe at risk um, if you know, there isn't this discussion around, you know, what is it that we value in kids? What do we value in learning and what would we like them to learn? Because um, what's going to happen is that making eventually is going to replace things, other things that the kids might be doing. And so I think people are going to have to make a choice of, you know, do you send your child to tutoring um, or, or do you send them to a, a, a maker session? Um, I don't think we've, we've gotten there yet, but I kind of predict in the next three to five years that uh, I think parents are going to be faced with that challenge as well. Yeah. Oh. Go ahead, Lisa. Oh, just um, that I agree that it's, ooh, it's, I have a little bit of an echo, um, that it's an approach to learning rather than um, necessarily an outcomes-driven, you know, thought about what learning people are achieving. Um, at least that's the way that we've approached it in, in the make shop. Um, we've really, when, when we think about learning, what we've done is we've uh, brought together the staff of make shop, the teaching artists, and then the research team at our museum. And we've looked to see um, what are the practices, what are the, the sort of actions, the behaviors, the things in process that we wanted, that we believe are kind of the lens through which these outcomes might be achieved um, that people are engaging in. So things like tinkering, like you know, being you know, being in, you know, engaging in inquiry, um, seeking out and sharing social and material resources. Um, these sorts of these sorts of things that we can identify and design to support. So in doing that together, we really um, created a language for learning that has shaped the way the practitioners, the the teaching artists. Um, design to support these things. Um, they use it when they're talking to one another, which is really exciting. Um, and um, and we uh, and we can then you know find ways to then measure it. So um, so it's exciting, and it's it's less of an outcome-based approach and more of a lens through which you look to um, to achieve outcomes that then can be um, relatable to to other people's interests, like schools and funders and things like that. So it doesn't discount things like STEM outcomes, but it um, provides you, you know, a maker-based lens through which to achieve those things. Can Can you say something in that language for us? Say something in that language? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, like I said before, there's there. Um, I, you know what? There's a white paper that um, is is should be a link um, in in the resources of this webinar. People can can read and find out more about those practices um, and how we, you know, and examples of them and how we um, have modified some of the the experiences in MakeShop to to better support learning by using those practices. So, I can't hear you. What's the name of that white paper? Um, I think it's it's called um, it is called uh, well it's 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 about the learning practices of MakeShop and I think it's it, it has a longer name than that because everything that's semi-academic has a very long name but um, <laughs> but it's uh, it's on the MakeShop website and um, there should be a up oh, the learning practices of making. An evolving framework for design. So that's that's the name of the the white paper. I was thinking, of, since we're speaking about making, I thought maybe Kylie might want to put a plug in for uh, an upcoming book that's going to be released soon uh, called Mycology. Uh, yeah, that's true, because right? it's involving all of you. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, we have a two-book series coming out. We've been trying to gather um, 
all of the, you know, basically the learnings, the understandings about these spaces, you know, the research is just burgeoning, and so we've we've brought this under, um, uh, you know, the umbrella, this these two um, volumes on on learning about making, so the Makeology series. Um, so this is coming out through Rutledge um, in the in actually just a couple of months. So we're just doing the final page proofs now, and and you know should should be hitting the the bookstores here pretty soon. I I believe actually the links are already up on Amazon too. So it's exciting. Wonderful. I, I think that the archive of this is going to be a very rich resource for people who are getting started with their, their making maker spaces. Um, I also wanted to point out that there are a number of really great resources on the Maker Ed website. Um, there's a um, I'm forgetting the specific name of the book around it's a maker handbook of how to start up maker spaces with some basic tools um, and uh, I, th I think these are all free resources that you can get at MakerEd. Is that okay is that makered.org or makered.com? Maker um, I think it's .org, yeah. Yeah, and you know they've yeah they've done the makerspace playbook. Um, there's been rich resources in terms of if you're wondering, I mean, building a makerspace is challenging. Somebody somebody uh, equated it to kind of doing a high-end kitchen when you start with not even having a zero, like a spoon, right? <laughs> so um, so how you know what do you order from everything from cotton balls to you know um, you know the hummingbird kits to the to the uh, laser cutter? You know how do you even put this list in the supply order? And you're you're probably bound to to like you know drive some people crazy as they as they try to put all of the uh, the invoices together for all of this this making but it's well worth the effort um, but the tools and materials that are available out there through all of these folks really make that easier they've also got a lot of resources around you know uh, supporting practices like tinkering uh, to think about the pedagogy that could that should be guiding that space as well as well as um, you know if you're interested in portfolios a really nice open portfolio report um, that we worked with them on that's that's available on the MakerEd site as well. Um, I don't know, AJ, if you remember this, but when we started the Tech Hive um, with support from the Institute for Museum Library Services through their Learning Labs program, we bought a handful of Makey Makeys and we had paper and glue sticks. <laughs> That's all we got. <laughs> I think that was it. And I, I actually had some aluminum foil because yeah. we actually couldn't afford to buy, um, you know, proper connectors. Um, mm -hmm. And so I feel like you can really start anywhere as long as you have the um, the, the attitude, right? The, great, right? Great people, great volunteers, but also the attitude that yeah. that you know you can be creative with lots of really simple materials, and yeah. you don't necessarily need a, a laser cutter. Um, we actually did a lot of cutting with Exacto blades, and uh, unfortunately, <laughs> our lessons turned into cutting. Yeah, so we have. We have some incredible crafters now, um, and you know we would love to have a, a laser cutter, but but you can make do quite a bit of making with um, some really basic things that you can get at a at a local craft store, and also at your um, you know if you go dumpster diving at a at a local hardware store, you can also get a lot of materials as well. Another thing we did, like one of the first like projects we all did was. Um, we create like we focused on beautifying our space because we just we pretty much just got like an, an empty amphitheater and they're like here this is the tech hive and you know this is your staff there's me and another guy and then these are your volunteers and um, and, and here's some makey makeys so what we did was like um, instead of like you know focusing on buying big equipment and all that we just focused on beautifying the space so we made like a giant sign that said tech hive and it lit up in LEDs and uh, just by doing that like it really like everyone just kinda like bought into it because you know they they literally help build the the space, um, so I was really happy that we we I guess we took that approach to build making our makerspace. It was like not the fancy like build a really design um, like a really like a really pretty like you know space. It was more of like make it accessible and then make sure we have like a strong community and then from the community everything will grow. Lisa, you could. Yeah, I would I would just emphasize uh, people over stuff. I just that's always my my mantra is staff over stuff. Um, knowing that if you have the right people, the passionate people um, behind the practice, it's you know that's really the the most essential ingredient in making um, a successful learning environment. So that's all. 
<laughs> well, thanks everyone. That was that went quickly. It, thanks for a great conversation, which will be, a, I think, a wonderful resource. I've I've collected all kinds of resources uh, for myself and my friends here. So this wraps up the third webinar of our January 2016 series on maker educators. Uh, please feel free to keep the energy going on Twitter using the hashtag ConnectedLearning. Uh, there will be a full video recording of this uh, webinar available um, almost immediately in a few minutes on ConnectedLearning.tv with other uh, curated content on the way probably in a, a couple of hours. Uh, all of these links will be on that, that same page. If you found this conversation helpful, please share it with your networks. And if you'd like to know about um, more upcoming webinars and conversations from Connected Learning TV, uh, which is now produced by the National Writing Project's Educator Innovator, please visit educatorinnovator.org and sign up for the email uh, newsletter. So join me next week at the same time for our final conversation of this series uh, on making learning in different settings. So thanks again, everyone. Um, I definitely will be in touch. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.